The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Good afternoon. I'm Martin Eden, Premier's political editor. My guest this afternoon is Chris Mould, the who was described by the Guardian newspapers as one of the UK's top social entrepreneurs. He is an innovative leader, widely experienced in both the public and the voluntary sectors. He is best known as the man who, as chair of the Trussell Trust, was behind the growth of food banks operated by many churches. Chris, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I understand you're a committed Christian since your teens, I believe. What brought you to that commitment? It's actually one of those classic stories. It's a teenager with something uh, to looking to looking for something to do on a Saturday night, and going to a Christian uh, rock band concert. Uh, I went along with some friends because uh, it was raining, and I actually couldn't get in the pub, and I was underage. So uh, you know, but that was back then when you you didn't have ID cards. Uh, and I was captivated by the music and the testimonies that people gave between each song. And by the end, when they said, if you need to, you know, uh, confess your sins and make a commitment to Jesus, you want this uh, uh, life that we're talking about for yourself, you need to come up the front. And to my horror, I was absolutely driven. I needed to be there. I was so hungry, so thirsty. First up, uh, then I need this. And were your family, your parents, Christians? Well, they were seeking, actually. They had been quite committed as teenagers and young adults, but it had all kind of fallen away. But in that period after I became a Christian, my mother uh, rediscovered her faith, was full of the Holy Spirit. My father found Christian faith again. Uh, Then my brother, then my uncle, then my grandfather. So there was a remarkable period of a few years when many people in our family came to faith, yes. A tribal conversion. Well, I don't know, but um, God was on our case, and I'm so pleased about that. Well, praise the Lord for that. Now, you, as a child, you lived in Sierra Leone. How? What difference did that have on your later life? Basically, I, mean, I, I spent the first seven years of my life um, in uh, West Africa. My parents were working... Uh, in government services, so they but but uh, uh, often outside the capital, so in rural environments amongst poverty, and they were passionate about bringing bringing development to bear on a society that desperately needed that. So you know, our conversation, people coming around on Sundays uh, for for lunch, uh, would be with. Um, uh, voluntary sector workers, with missionaries, with uh, government officials. Um, and it was about how to improve society and to resolve the problems of poverty. And I guess uh, that it was kind of drip-feeding into me because that uh, family commitment to do something about inequality, to put right uh, injustices in the world, has, is, 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 a, is a leitmotif right through uh, and still is. But you then went to boarding school. Did that not kill it? Uh, Great question. I didn't like boarding school, and my parents, bless them, uh, were concerned because I'd been to eight schools by the time I was nine years old. I went to and fro, different countries, uh, and uh, they had been given some advice that if I was not to go off the rails and and turn into serious trouble, I needed needed some stability. So they put me in a boarding school. Um, But actually, they didn't go abroad again. We came back to England, and they came and lived nearby. I told them shortly afterwards that I didn't want to stay there. And we did the two years till, you know, I did the 11 plus and and, uh, I went to um, an ordinary state grammar school in High Wycombe. So it didn't kill you? No, no, it didn't kill it. I mean, the reality was it was a, a... private school but a Methodist foundation and there was chapel and there were good things taught and you know yes nobody undermined the Christian faith and and uh, set me on a track to become uh, you know a, a wealthy banker or something during that period. So your parents chose well for you? I think so yes. Yes now it's said that you preach regularly 
Is that in your local church or is that part of your wider ministry that you're preaching, uh, in a sense, on behalf of those missions you serve? Um, I, I'm quite regularly on our uh, local church preaching rota and I preach in a variety of places. For me, basically, uh, I, I just love the opportunity to talk about Jesus and to share uh, what uh, the Bible is saying about uh, faith and its application to life. So any chance I get, as long as I can fit it in, if I'm asked, I'll come and do it. Uh, because, you know, we need to be out there talking about uh, our God uh, and the fact that he has all the answers to every aspect of life and there's so many people in this world that don't know that so I'm passionate about that I've been um, preaching uh, you know for better or worse uh, since I was in my late teens and and uh, yeah uh, it's not very often but it's something I love to do and you know people can judge whether it's uh, worth hearing or not when they're here. Now, you spent 19 years working in the National Health Service, 12 of them in top jobs. What drew you to the NHS? Um, well, I, you know, people say God did. Uh, and, and on occasions during this conversation, you'll hear me say that because that is actually the basic truth. But how does it work? I did a degree in history. I then did a master's degree in social policy for, in developing countries. I had the sense, my wife and I, that we were heading for mission work, uh, but we would be involved in some form of uh, academic teaching and church planting alongside or something like that. Um, it didn't turn out like that. I finished a master's degree at the LSE, got a very good grade, and was unemployed, hunting for jobs at the time uh, in the very beginning of the 80s when graduate unemployment was hugely high. Uh, and I wandered around London University's um, careers office uh, looking for um, something to, to, to do because I needed to earn some money. And the, the NHS management training scheme popped up. It sort of was there. I looked at it and thought, well, I'll have a go. I had a go. I got through to the last stage, months, 5,000 people applying for 45 slots, and I didn't get it. I actually was convinced I ought to be working for the NHS by then and that, that God was somehow saying, this is your slot. So I phoned up the Department of Health and said, look, I don't understand. Is this a mistake? Because I think I should be here and they said no interesting your grades are very good can't tell you why but actually you're not on the management training scheme and as a result I was introduced to somebody who gave me a temporary clerical officer's job in the NHS so that's where it began a clerical officer three-month contract um, pushing paper and you went on from there to become director of an NHS trust I was chief executive of a couple of NHS trusts um, uh, Chief Executive of uh, Health Authority. Um, yes, yes. So quite a few years as, in the jargon, what they call the Chief Officer with, you know, several thousand staff uh, working in the organisation that I led. So it's, but it's said, and there's something of a legend to this, that whilst you were a Chief Officer, you used to go and talk to the patients. Is that true? Of course. I mean, you know, there are customers. And uh, one of the things that matters immensely to me is that we walk the talk as leaders. Uh, and, you know, if you're providing health services, you need to know uh, what the people receiving the care think of what you're doing. If you're managing people who are under stressed circumstances delivering care in an intensive care unit or in the operating theatre or wherever else, you need to know something about what it's like for them. So I used to make sure that I went into the operating theatres to find out. I would change into the greens and I'd go, and if I want to meet a consultant surgeon to have a conversation about something, why should I ask him to come to my office? Why don't I go to where he works? And that became a uh, a principle, you know, wherever possible, I'd say to my PA, my secretary, you know, I want to go there if I need the meeting, where they are, not where I, I, I have my den, if you like. But that sounds very relational, even incarnational. You went to them. How typical is that in the NHS? Oh, some of the best managers around um, 
lived like that. That's how they worked in the time that I worked there. I mean, I'm talking back in the 80s and the 90s, but uh, that is, you know, good leadership practice. It's not the only way to get things done, and it's not the only way to manage taxpayers' money efficiently. But for me, uh, it was the only uh, legitimate way for me to do it. Now, the NHS is now in, in a rather crippled state. Uh, we find it short of funds, it's missing targets, it's trying to cope with the pressures of an ageing population. If you were asked today to go and sort out the NHS, do you have any thoughts about how you might go about it? It's an immensely difficult job. Uh, and, you know, I guess the answer is 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 now what it would have been at any time if it had ever been asked of me, which is we have to get the right team together and we have to do some listening. We live in a world which is increasingly noisy. There's an awful lot of people with opinions. Um, some of them are ill-founded. Some of them are harsh. The, rhetor- the, the language, the, the dialogue is harsher, tougher. And in those circumstances, I think more of us need to go and listen to look at, the, uh, at what's going on and to reflect with each other before we prescribe a solution. But the bottom line for the NHS is this. It's an absolutely amazing uh, institution that does a brilliant job uh, and uh, we need to invest in it. And that's about the future. That's thinking about how do we make sure that young people today think that the best thing they could do in life would be to be a doctor or a nurse or a radiologist or a manager of a department of the NHS. The OECD says that compared with other prosperous countries, our health service is above average, but we pay our doctors too much and we have fewer, we have fewer doctors per head of population. Is that your view too? Pay uh, is quite a challenging issue. Uh, you need to look carefully at the whole package. Uh, there's no doubt at all that we don't train enough doctors and that we've not been able to respond fast enough to the change in the working uh, practices of uh, clinical people. We, mm. we, we have an expectation that there should be more flexibility, that there needs to be more uh, room for part-time employment. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you only have to note with thanks that the NHS is well served by huge numbers of people who are from other countries who who serve us so well Uh, and to recognise that that is something we uh, put at risk you know, only if we're unwise, and, and yes. you know, we're, we're here talking about that willingness to welcome the stranger, to to see uh, migration as a positive thing. I've been in and out of hospital myself quite a lot lately, and I've seen the evidence that you are obviously referring to of the large number of migrant doctors and nurses, without whom. We couldn't. Yeah. I'm a friend of mine who's a director of finance said to me a couple of years ago, you know, um, we survive thanks to some wonderful Italians and Portuguese people. Yeah. Now, will Brexit make recruitment of those doctors and nurses much more difficult? I think it will. Um, but, you know, that's something that we have to uh, look at um, technically. Is there a remedy that we can make, mm. given the, 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 the givens of the situation? You know, Brexit has been voted for. Uh, it's going to happen. Uh, I personally find that deeply regrettable, but that's where we're at. Uh, um, yeah, I suspect it will make things a lot more difficult. Um, and it's got to be top of the agenda that we find ways to welcome people from other countries who are coming here to work and to serve. Do you think that part of the solution might be that each of us could live more simply, more healthily, eat perhaps more less food and more nutritious food, take more exercise, not drink lots of alcohol or smoke or whatever, and in that sense bring down the demand for NHS services to a level where only those with really serious illnesses get their first get their priority. I obviously, you know, 
eating well and looking after yourself is very, very important. Uh, and actually, you know, if you think about it from a Christian point of view, uh, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We really do need to respect our bodies uh, and uh, be be ready for service, if you like. I mean, it, where you can. But the, the, the facts around the NHS are these, that uh, it's done a brilliant job. So has uh, all the preventative health interventions of the last many decades. Mm. Uh, and as a consequence, people live longer uh, and they live into old age and they live stronger. But in the end, there is a demise. People do lose their strength. They, and, and when that happens, we need as a, as a, as a, as a nation that uh, values life to be able to do our best in those last years and that last experience and whatever it is for anyone that needs it. And that's one of the great things about the NHS. It doesn't say, I'm sorry, you were the person that uh, you know caused that accident and therefore we're not so keen to help you as if it just happened to you because someone else caused it. There's no blame. Uh, we help. We fix it. And that's how it should be. What I'm hearing so far, Chris is that you're a very relational person and people matter to you. Am I hearing you correct? Yes. Uh, and, you know, he, I guess for me, if you, if you think about the, the, the being a Christian, people matter to God. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's the absolute crux of it, you know. The, Jesus died for uh, individuals across the globe. Uh, and therefore, if we can't get it and take on board that that approach to to life, to society, um, something's missing, and we need to be looking for it to say, "I want to put this right." Yeah. Chris, in two thousand and one, you left the health service and you went to policing. What on earth made you make that move? Um, there's a good history behind that. Actually, I was very, very involved at national level, leading uh, an organisation that brought national vocational qualifications into health and social care. Uh, back then, there were about half a million people working in the NHS who uh, were providing frontline care, but were not nurses and doctors. They were assistants, auxiliaries, uh, and they had very, very little training or support. Uh, and um, we needed to put that right. Uh, so I helped bring NVQs into the health service and became the chairman of HealthWork UK, which is today called Skills for Health. And it's wonderful to see an organisation that I was involved in setting up still thriving. And um, not all of the things I've done go that way. So this, this is one of the, uh, the, the good results, you know. Um, and out of that, I became quite uh, engaged with the whole idea that uh, every individual working in the public sector ought to be equipped with uh, the right skills to do the job and that we should treat everybody with the same respect and dignity. That means there weren't special people who were the professionals and then there were the others, you know? Yes. Uh, we're a team. We work together and we make a difference, including the porters and the people working in the kitchens of a hospital and not just uh, the professors. Um, and as a consequence, I built up a bit of a reputation around workforce development, training, evidence-based practice, making sure you taught people to do what the research told you uh, was the way to do what you needed to do. Uh, and that was in the clinical sphere. But, of course, the police were uh, facing the uh, Police Reform Act, uh, a new government, looking at how it might improve policing in the UK. And I... Uh, applied for the job of chief executive of a new organisation that was going to run police training for England and Wales and bring together eight different organisations and try and create an evidence-based approach to teaching police and the allied professions um, how to go about policing. Um, wonderful job. Enjoyed it immensely. Hugely challenging. Working for uh, the Home Secretary and the Police Minister... And three years later, you quit and went to work with the Trussell Trust as its chairman. Well, it was a three-year fixed-term contract, and I was the first and probably the last uh, non-police officer to be a chief constable post holder in the police since the Second World War. So it was an experiment uh, to bring something from the world of health, where there was a lot of 
history of evidence-based practice and the application of research to the curriculum into policing. So, yes, my, my, my three-year contract came to an end and I was looking for uh, other large government jobs and felt God saying to me, you know, I want you to give me some of your time. And I said to the Lord, you know, I've got four children, I've got a family, I need to earn money, and I, uh, you've got all of my time anyway. And I felt the response was actually, no, I want you to give up two days. Give me two days. Um, you can work the other three, but I want two. That's led me to think, oh, my goodness, you know, what this means is I'm going to need to be a consultant, and I don't really like the idea of management consulting, you know, that stuff. But it's part-time. Uh, and in the end, after a couple of months of, of sort of debate, me and the Lord in prayer, I said, OK, I will, but you're going to need to find me some charities to, to do this thing in these two days. And I'd been volunteering a bit and helping my friend Paddy Henderson with the Trussell Trust during that interim period. Um, and Paddy said, well, I want you to stay. I need your help. Charity number one was there within the week that I said, yes, God, I'll do it. Mm. And then I got a phone call from a friend of mine who uh, was involved with um, Soul Survivor at the time that they were doing Soul in the City of London, who said, look, there's this job. It's not, not a job. It's, they need some help um, with Soul in the City, London, in coordinating the leadership team, working with Steve Clifford and, and uh, a couple of others, Jonathan Olietti and Patrick Reagan, um, wonder whether you might be willing to help. So I got involved in that. Um, wonderful experience, um, helping behind the scenes, really, as Soul in the City London took off. And that mobilised 20,000 young people in London in 2004, doing a whole host of amazing projects, social action projects, something like a 1,000 projects, something like a 1,000 churches in London, um, Extraordinary uh, and wonderful. Steve Clifford, Jonathan Olietti, Patrick Regan. You're talking the Christian aristocracy there, aren't you? Well, they're people that I got to know through yeah. that. I'd not met them before, and I'm very, very pleased that I had the chance to. And yeah, Mike Pilavacci and others. You know, the thing is, there are some wonderful people who've worked together across the last couple of decades to absolutely. Uh, meld together uh, those who are passionate about sharing the gospel in terms of evangelism with those who are convinced that you know as Christians we are called to uh, put right injustice in society and to take action to show the father's love on the ground uh, to those that feel totally unloved we'll take a short break and be back with you in a few minutes The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Martin Eden, Premier's political editor, and I'm talking to Chris Mould, the social entrepreneur. Chris, the Trussell Trust organises food banks, helping people facing food poverty is this an example of Good Samaritan thinking in the 21st century? Yes. In a nutshell, yes. You know, there are far more people in our country than we ever imagine at first who find themselves in crisis, often short term, but it doesn't mean it's not a crisis because it's just happening for a few days, a few weeks or a few months, who cannot get food on the table. They've run out of money, they've got nowhere to turn and they need help now. The food bank movement was all about saying we want to get local communities mobilised by the church, catalyzed by the church, the local Christians in the community, to meet the need of their neighbours when they were in trouble and to have a food resource available so that if they in turn ran into difficulty because their business got into difficulty or because they lost their job or there was some terrible ill health problem in the family, they could call on the food bank they'd been supporting as supporters. So this whole idea of we'll put some food somewhere and we'll let people in need have it and then when we need it we can go and call on it was the basic behind this. But yes, it's Good Samaritan activity. But it's first aid rather than social engineering. 
It's first aid, but you know, first aid is absolutely vital because there are a lot of people alive today who are only alive because there was somebody good on first aid who was there to hand. But when a politician like Dominic Rubb says that the typical user of a food bank is not someone who's languishing in poverty, it's someone who has a temporary cash flow problem, he's not completely wrong? Well, I think he's deeply ill-informed, and I'd ask, well, how many of the people who use food banks have you spent time talking to? How many across the country? And we have 1,400 Trussell Trust food bank centres in this UK of ours. Uh, how many of those, Dominic Raab, have you been talking to? Before you say that uh, this is the typical uh, user or client. We need to do more listening. We need to understand better what the various causes are. And we need to take a look at some of the other facts in mm. our society. You know, it's government uh, figures that will tell us that around 13 million people live uh, below the poverty line in our country. We know that we have severe problems with... Um, a number of million of those people who are close to destitution at times. The Joseph Ranthery Foundation has uh, published statistics that suggest 1.25 million uh, people are living in dest destitution. Um, this is in one of the most wealthy countries in the world. Um, and it goes with a society which has a huge, huge divide between those that barely have enough to meet the costs of uh, living in this country and those that have far in excess of that. Um, we're a very divided nation. We're divided in terms of uh, the intergenerational justice, so younger people and older people, you know, younger people looking at a, 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 a future which is far bleaker than I would have been expecting when I was their age. Yes. Um, something's not right and needs to be put right. And Food Bank is one example of what happens when we don't pay enough attention to inequality, to inadequate remuneration, and to the economic drivers behind that, the cost of housing, the cost of food. For example, when um, food banks were uh, growing very fast, we were setting up large numbers of them and demand for food bank help was growing very fast. The underlying price rise of a simple basket of food, or what, what the economists call a weekly basket of food, went up 30% plus in five years. So it's hardly surprising when people's earnings and their remuneration didn't move yeah. uh, that more of them got into trouble. Surely. So... This is, is in part about just simply loving your neighbour as yourself, as Christ commanded. But it's more than that, isn't it? This is in a way of churches. I know that some food banks are not necessarily exclusively Christian. I think the one in my own area, the Jewish synagogue, is also involved. But this is about mission in that sense of the church caring for its neighbourhood in a mm. practical way without asking anything back. It's giving, it's loving, it's yes. caring. and you know, that's very important, that this is the action of a voluntary organisation. This is about giving. It's giving uh, uh, with your brain in gear, so people cannot just walk into a food bank and say, I'm a bit hungry, can you give me some food? They're all referred. We have more than 30,000 agencies across the country referring to trust or trust food banks. And the way we put it is this. If you trust a social worker or a health visitor, then you need as a donor of food to trust that we'll be giving the food to people who genuinely need it mm. because social workers sign the forms. Uh, education welfare officers, uh, family liaison officers sign the forms. You know, people who've been trained and respect say, this person's in need, please help them. So it's a referred-only service. Nonetheless, you know, 1.2 million three-day emergency food parcels were given out by Trussell Trust food banks in the last financial year. That is a huge number. And one more thing. This is about communities that care who've been given the opportunity to take a practical action by the churches who've stepped up to the leadership challenge. This is not about Christians donating food full stop. They're part of that. Uh, we estimate that four million citizens have been mobilised by the Trussell Trust each year in the last few years to donate food. They buy food in supermarkets. 
because where else do you get it? And they give it through the church, they give it through schools, they give it at supermarket collections. It's an enormously heart-lifting uh, piece of evidence to say communities are uh, living and able still. You know, we, we're not just a, a nation full of individuals that just look out for number one. Not at all. To what extent do supermarkets also give food directly when it reaches its sell-by date or whatever, because those are often very conservative sell-by dates and the food is still much usable. There are other charities that uh, we partner with uh, who do involve themselves uh, very effectively in, in, in that uh, movement of surplus food to charities that have got people they can give yeah. it to who are in need, people who are homeless, people who have uh, in hostels and, and, and so on. But the Trussell Trust model is all about persuading local communities to donate in-date food uh, and then for us to give it out to people who live nearby who are in trouble. Uh, so it, it's, it's, we do take some surplus food, of course we do, when it's relevant and appropriate, but we partner with others and together with some of those organisations we could see a country where no one ever needs to go hungry and that's not yet the case but we could get there but to what extent is this also from the church's perspective at least active christian mission to their neighborhood i think it's absolutely active christian mission and you know 12,000 churches as far as we can see, are involved in some way or other in the Trussell Trust Food Bank Network. And remember, what we're talking about is, is, is huge numbers that once were just a few. So once upon a time, and it's only back in 2003, three, four, uh, we had a food bank in Salisbury, a single project, and a vision that we sense the Lord giving us as trustees of the Trussell Trust, that if Salisbury needed a food bank, then every town should have one. Basically, that sense of um, weight upon our hearts as we had a vision day and prayed together, you know, what on earth happens to someone who's in crisis who doesn't live in our town where there's no food bank? Who helps the family with a two-year-old that's screaming because they're really hungry and they've got no money and they don't know what to do and, and, and you know, they're not sure what they're going to do tomorrow either? Well... Out of that sense of something must be done, we set the vision, which was that we would do our best to replicate food banks to the point where every community in Britain had one. I said earlier I heard you as a relational being. I'm now hearing you as a missionary with a heart for God's justice. Am I reading you right? I think so. Um, you know, we can go back, actually, to that question you asked earlier about the health service. I, mean, I spent 19 years in the health service, and for me, that was the place where I was called to be in mission. Um, I expected to pray for the organisation that I led, uh, to ask the Lord to intervene to bring good things to bear in the organisation, so we prayed for relationships, we would pray for uh, financial favour so that we had enough resource, we would pray that the challenges of recruiting the right people would turn out right so that we had good quality people and so on. And I think it's absolutely vital that any Christian can um, see themselves as placed by the Lord in whatever work they've got for a purpose, mm. to live out the gospel to bring the presence of Christ into the place where they work uh, and to expect the Holy Spirit to overflow into the place they work. So do you see yourself as a missionary? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, that, that I, I'm never that keen on the title. Um, but you yes. used it yourself earlier. You see, you thought you were, be, you were God was calling you to mission. And yeah. he has called you to mission, but it's here, not overseas, at least until the yeah. end of last I've year. I've got no doubt at all that, uh, you know, I, I'm uh, living as best I can a life where I serve the Lord that I love 
that I honour, that I worship, and that he has things specifically for me to do. I've also got no doubt that that's true for every other Christian that he's ever called. And if only we would see more of the church mobilised, passionate, using their resources, uh, personal resources, their assets, uh, working together with others, you know, um, saying to God, well, what would you do about this situation? This is the creative bit, the entrepreneurial mm. bit. This is, you know, as you see a problem and you say, Lord, what, what should be done? Um, show us. And then having the courage to say, well, we're going to have a go. But that could apply to things like family breakdown, to domestic violence, to kids truanting at school. Yes. There's a lot of ways in which yes. what you've just said could be applied to other areas of life. Is, does it ever frustrate you that church, so many churches, I admit there are some very significant and honourable exceptions, but that so many churches, in a sense, are just Sunday-only churches, that... They're not really actively engaged in their local community and their members are not seeing themselves with that sense of a justice-orientated mission in Britain today where the need is great. Well, it's interesting, um, that question. Uh, my first thought, when I think in this area, is, wow, isn't it amazing what Christians in this country have done and are doing? Because actually there are an extraordinary range of... Uh, initiatives which really do address the problems of those that are marginalised, excluded, suffering and in difficulty that only exist because Christians have been stirred up, motivated and had the courage to to do something about it. There's, it's a wonderful ecosystem, if you like, of, of, of local activity. Um, that's the first thought. The second is, you know, there's far too few uh, people involved compared to the numbers of people who do worship on a Sunday uh, and praise God that they worship on a Sunday because whilst they're there they get the chance to connect with the living God they get a chance to hear uh, good teaching and they get a chance to reflect on what they should be doing Monday through to the next Sunday but at the same time as Tim Farron has made pain in the last 24 hours, mm. there is an increasing resistance to Christians articulating what they believe about various issues. What you have been doing and what the food bank's doing is a way of overcoming the barrier of actually serving in a non-judgmental way, expressing justice in a way that, frankly, the rest of society needs is not matching there is a problem over um in the political sphere around uh you know personal faith and adherence to the teaching of the bible and the consequences of that but you know we're sometimes a bit selective aren't we jesus says a lot about the fact that christians will be reviled they will be uh, persecuted, they will be uh, attacked and disagreed with uh, and so on and that, you know, we're meant to count it all joy when that happens and I frankly feel it's pretty scary to think that, that that might happen and it has happened from time to time but we have to to be firm and clear but paramountly we need to be coming at these issues from a place of love for me, uh, it does mean that it's very, very hard and it, to, to imagine how, how, how you can survive long term as a politician because sometime or other there's going to be the, the kind of uh, bust up that Tim Farron has, has uh, bumped into. Now, at the end of last year, you stood down as the chair of the Trussell Trust and you're now working with something called the Foundation for Social Change and Inclusion in Bulgaria. What is that about and what, what drove you to make that change? 
Foundation for Social Change and Inclusion uh, is working to break the cycle of poverty right across Southeast Europe. That's the Balkans. Uh, former Yugoslavia, for many of us, is the easiest way to connect with it, that war-torn uh, yeah. zone from the past. Uh, we are seeking to uh, help some of the most marginalised people in Europe to find a way to uh, live life to the full. And particularly we're working with young people who are leaving state care. Several of those countries have a long history of abandonment of children into state care. So higher proportions of children are abandoned from their family home parents and so on. And as a result, several of those countries are uh, source countries for people who are the victims of labour and sex exploitation, so human trafficking uh, victims. Uh, and we're seeking to break the cycle to say, you know, these young people need not be uh, facing a future where they end up uh, in a, a brothel in Brussels or Paris or London. They could equally be someone who's holding down a job in a capital city in Serbia or in Bulgaria or in Albania, married, bringing up children of their own, earning an income, paying taxes... Uh, Cycle of Poverty Broken. So we're in that field. That's the organisation. It actually comes out of work that was done by the Trussell Trust decades ago. We first started as an organisation working in Bulgaria. And this is a, a long thread that has followed through to us establishing an independent uh, body, the Foundation for Social Change and Inclusion, 2008-09, based in Sofia in Bulgaria, to build up the work, to, to extend it further. And in the end, uh, we've got to the point where I've decided with my trustees from the Trussell Trust that I should be um, set free, if you like, to take this independent charity, now registered in the UK as well, uh, and see what we can do to build it up and make it happen. And so what you're trying to do is very much like what people, Christians like Lord Shaftesbury did in 19th century Victorian England. In what way? Well, getting street kids, street kids yep. living on the street, you know, the, the Oliver characters. Yes, yes, we, we are absolutely trying to help people who have some really bleak prospects going forward, transitioning from youth into adulthood uh, to get onto a different track. Now, that requires us to do some basic things. So we run a residential training programme. We provide young people with uh, a safe place to live. We encourage uh, local Christians in the countries we're working in to become involved in the project, either by applying for jobs as members of staff uh, in the house or by volunteering and, and uh, getting to know the young people. And, to, you know, so again, this very basic principle. Uh, every human being needs somewhere safe to live, some good people to hang out with, and something useful to do. So the third point, we seek to get our young people skilled up and into employment and have had some great results because we're dealing with youngsters who have really not done at all well in the education system, so they're close to unemployable. And by the time uh, they've finished our programme, they hold down jobs, they pay taxes, they pay rent, and the prospects are far brighter than they were a couple of years earlier. Two questions then. One, what do the, the national governments in those countries where you're working this work, what do they make of this? Are they supportive of it? And how is this work funded? National governments are interested in what we do. And once they understand what's happening, they're very keen to encourage us to set up service because there is a shared uh, recognition that the need is serious, the need is great, and that they are not able to do much themselves. The countries are much, much poorer than the UK and the young people are over 18. And actually, rather like most other nations, we tend to say once they're 18, they're not children, they don't have the same protection requirements and we no longer have a statutory responsibility for them. So it's really hard to find ways to say, you as a government should be paying for this but they know that the consequences of not helping those young people transition into adulthood 
hit the prison system, they hit the criminal justice system, they end up with people with health problems who are sick and mental health problems and yeah. so on. So failure to uh, be a little bit more innovative about how we help people transition costs us dearly as society. It's not just there, but here too. So the first thing is, yes, they're keen. Yes, they're supportive. We're teaching the Christian organisations that help as local partners to run the programmes to engage with the local authorities, to talk to officials. And that's fresh and new for many of the uh, the people involved. And there is a, an approach to that we can help them learn. How is it funded? Well, it's been funded um, with some very generous uh, finance to do a, a kind of proof of concept to test this out. And uh, a Christian couple donated some money which enabled us to show how we could take these... Um, projects in Bulgaria and replicate them in countries where they were also needed. But as is always the case, money runs out. So my job is to persuade as many people as possible that it's really worth it to donate to the FSCI, Foundation for Social Change and Inclusion, because we will be making significant differences in the lives of people whose prospects are otherwise really quite awful. A young man that um, I'm ever so proud of at the minute. Uh, you know, he started life uh, in a normal family. His father was uh, killed in a motor accident when he was eight. His mother went off the rails and in the end uh, left him and his young brother alone in a house looked after by the neighbours. And that's how he ended up in, in an orphanage. Um, today, he's, he's a young man who's um, gone through our programme. He's been working. He's been earning money. He's looking forward, as he puts it, to putting the principles he's been taught in our House of Opportunity Training Programme into practice in life ahead. He's got a positive view. He's got hope. You're an activist, you're a man with vision, and you're a Christian. How does your faith and your theology undergird and hold these different characteristics closely together? Um, it starts with the relationship that you have with the Lord. That has to be fresh. You have to make sure that you're in conversation. That's prayer on a regular basis. That you're listening to others who have a similar relationship so that you hear often from other members of the church what God seems to be saying what what matters now so it's it's dynamic and, and it's about staying close to the living lord who you know is is promises to provide us with answers to uphold us when we're in trouble uh and to give us purpose and direction so that that's the core faith is about your relationship second thing is you've got to be uh clear that it has to spill over we, we are placed in our communities in our location in our life experience for a reason the Lord God is utterly passionate about redeeming the whole of the world redemption in all its different facets and he's for reasons that you know, sometimes people question but this is how God has gone about it he said I want to use you guys I'll work through you. Now, if we're saying, hmm, don't particularly want to do that just now because we're busy earning some money or we're busy uh, sorting out, you know, the, the, uh, the, the mortgage. And when we're finished, then we'll give you some time, Lord. Well, he's gracious, but actually I think more of us need to be listening out for the call and the challenge to step up earlier, sooner and in a more committed way. And this is all about grace. Well, I certainly don't deserve the experience that I've had at the hands of the Lord. It's been fantastic, wonderful, and not earned. Um, he, he knows me and he knows just exactly what kind of person I really am on the inside, you know. But nonetheless, and that's the thing, nonetheless, he's up for using us. And so faith, vitally important, because the other thing is, you know, we're in a battle. We're dealing with a world uh, that we're placed into which is uh, in contention 
Satan is interested in wrecking life. He loves to see a situation where an individual uh, is in despair, is broken. He loves to see communities and societies where things go wrong. You know, and the Lord, by contrast, is keen that people should enjoy fullness of life. And, and sometimes we, we don't want to get over-spiritual about that, you know, fullness of life. He wants us to enjoy it in all sorts of ways. And you look at the way Jesus engaged with people around him. Are you sick? Do you want to get better? Yes. Uh, we're at a wedding and they're running out of wine, but actually we should be celebrating, so let's have some wine, you know, life. And the Lord wants more people to enjoy that. And I think we're as Christians' agency. We're agents there ready to um, do our bit. Agents of God's grace and justice and love. Yes, yes. So what part, you've talked about uh, your relationship with God and obviously that is ultimately rooted in prayer. How on earth, with all this activity, A, do you find time for, for regular prayer? Um, it's a habit. I go back to uh, when it was much harder, when uh, we had two small children uh, and they cried all night and kept us awake. And I vividly remember my dad sitting on the sofa when he came to visit, asking the question you've just asked and saying, what are you doing about praying? And I said, you know, you don't understand, Dad, it's really difficult because we're up 10 times in the night and and I've got to rush off because I'm managing the hospital, you know. And and he said, you really do need to prioritise uh, just just make sure you have time for prayer and time with the Lord, even if it's just 10 minutes. I can see him as if it was yesterday, uh, right now, you know. And I took that on board and said, OK, I will do that. So just a short bit of time every day, um, recalibration. For me, it's the morning. Um, it doesn't have to be. Some people do it at night. But it's got to be habit. It's got to be very regular. And it ends up being a kind of dialogue that, end, you know, runs through the day. Chris, what is your last word in this programme, your last word to our listeners that, would, in a sense, you want them, if anything else comes out of this programme, you would like them to remember what? I think it's this, that God cares. And you may say, oh, well, that's a bit trite. But actually, I want you to start thinking about the heart, the emotion. Um, The Lord cares about people who are in trouble. He never blames them. He cares. And he longed for you to share that uh, passion to the point where you sacrifice, to the point where you give, to the point where you do something about it. Chris, thank you very much for sharing yourself so fully, so openly. May God bless you, your wife and your children and all the projects you take on in God's name the rest of your life. Thank you very much. Thank you.